This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Pleasures of RuneQuest. The British Pet Massacre. The King in Yellow Mythos. And Lev Gumilyov. Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger. Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players. New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama. Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draft of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast dramatic character creation, laser-focused on creating dynamic protagonists. A simple 2 die 6 resolution mechanic. Inject shocking unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes, and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments. Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember liberty is job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and... The benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut, and today the miniatures are all finely articulated with different pieces of armor on different parts of their body, and the dice, oh, it's percentile dice take place of pride this time, not merely one die 20, but two die 20s, each numbered seriatim. They're not just percentile dice, this uses all the dice. It does use all the dice, but the percentile dice are the king of the dice. Yes, exactly. Because Patreon backer, Hyperlexic, has asked us, or specifically Robin, a question, because Robin is, of course, working on Pavis and Big Rubble for RuneQuest Glorantha. Hyperlexic says, I'm also starting an RQ campaign and would be curious about his thoughts about where the real fun lies. Robin, of course, is an advocate of designing a system to meet a purpose. Reversing that, what is the purpose for which RQ was designed, aside from simulating Steve Perrin's SCA group, which I think is Kind of a mean side note there, hyperlexic, but whatever, we'll let it pass. Steve's a big guy. He's a hero of the game industry. He can shrug that off. Robin, where's the fun in RuneQuest then? Where's the fun in RuneQuest now? Where's the fun in designing RuneQuest? Tell us about fun and or RuneQuest. Right. Um, so I, I think more specifically, I uh, advocate uh, designing a system to uh, fit its core activity. Um, because, of course, I think it is somewhat slating all other role-playing games uh, <laughs> before me and not listening to me that all games have a purpose. Right. Um, so the question I think is, uh, you know, the, of where the fun lies is, is perhaps uh, more of the point. And first of all, I don't think it's actually a pejorative to say that in, at least in large part, uh, it, uh, is there to, uh, simulate Steve Perrin's understanding of, uh, Bronze Age combat as, 
communicated through his SCA experience, that that was very much part of one of the sort of prongs of RuneQuest. That he knew being whacked on the knee felt different than being whacked in the stomach. Yes, uh, which is why there's hit locations. And a big part of, I think, the fun of RuneQuest is, in addition to exploring Greg Stafford's world of Glorantha, is the nitty-gritty, deep-down, simulationist approach to finding every little thing, particularly about combat, and uh, seeing how they would, uh, you know, in quotation marks, really work. So the, the one of the things is just the, the nitty-gritty of that. Uh, so the fact that it is crunchy is um, a big part of what people enjoy. And uh, for uh, additional backstory, for those uh, not familiar, I... Uh, later, much later, designed uh, another uh, rule system to play uh, in Glorantha with, which is uh, in many ways uh, the opposite side of the spectrum. That's uh, Hero Quest, and its design goal uh, was to uh, create a game that would allow you to play the stories that Greg Stafford supplied about Glorantha, which differ quite markedly, uh, not just in power scale, but also in what you are doing from what happens in a typical RuneQuest game. So in RuneQuest, you are uh, drawing on these uh, myths of the past and the magic all comes through your mythic understanding. But what you are doing is you are exploring some corner of the world, uh, seeing all sorts of weird things and wondering whether or not you should get into fights because... Uh, the uh, system is not only uh, very simulationist, but as an outgrowth of that, it is very uh, lethal or at least character ending because the way the combat system works is it focuses a lot on the fact that people get hit in the limbs a lot in close-up combat with weapons. Mm-hmm. And it, more so than any other system, makes it uh, not just possible, but highly likely that in the course of any fight, you may not be killed, but chances are, if there's like five or six players, a couple of the characters are, are losing a leg yeah, <laughs> or right. an arm. And, uh, unless, uh, you have the character with the, with the magic spell that allows you to reattach limbs, which is as essential as having a cleric who can cure light wounds, uh, your careers are often going to end after one fight. Yeah. And one of the challenges of this, and I'm not going to, it is true that uh, my group is more tuned probably to, to hero quest than it would be to, uh, than it is to, to uh, a super crunchy game like rune quest. And this is a game that assumes that you're going to put hours of homework into uh, generating your character and also makes the characters very, fragile. Um, so I just basically had to say, you know what? You over there, you have heal six because without it, uh, it is a, an odd game indeed. So it's right, not a yeah. game that is trying to uh, create narrative or create something that feels like a story, but something that feels like sort of a bunch of random, often sometimes horrible and sharp events in a sort of a non-teleological world where uh, you know, enough gods are contending with one another that what happens to you is, you know, just sort of uh, random and horrible. And uh, as a result, though, you become careful about what fights you get into. And I think another thing that people enjoy about it is that it uh, spends a lot of time detailing combat in a way that discourages you from just resorting to it. And uh, so far, my players um, have not quite learned 
uh, to not just go, th their preferred method of uh, getting involved in a fight is more sort of tuned to F20 or 13th age, where it's like, if you see a bunch of guys that, that you might want to fight, you run up and fight them. You fight them, yeah. You don't do a bunch of planning. You don't go and get allies. In fact, normally in other games, I discourage players from, uh, you know, bringing in the cops or getting allies that they have to solve the problems themselves. But in RuneQuest, that's something you absolutely want to do is find followers and allies and stuff. Uh, and you never, uh, you can never assume that anybody you run into in the world happens to be your challenge rating. And even uh, a putatively uh, a weak group of foes could get a lucky shot and take off a leg or, you know, this is a game that has rules where, you know, there's a, a fatal headshot can, you know, if they roll uh, the head as a hit location and uh, you don't parry or dodge or do all the things that are meant to protect you to some degree from that sort of harm. You could just, your character, no matter how buff, could be killed by any character, no matter how weak. So I think people take a perverse joy in that. And, uh, and that brings us to another part of, I think, what uh, RuneQuest likers like about RuneQuest is that it decides where the story goes for you. It doesn't ask the players or even really the GM so much what would be interesting to happen here, the way that HeroQuest does, but it says, this is what happened. Oh, yeah, your, uh, uh, your princeling just got uh, shot to the head and he's dead. And, uh, okay, now you got to cope with that. So uh, it very specifically details what happens in combat, so you don't have to invent cool descriptions of what's going on. It The, the rules uh, tell the story for you uh, in a way that other uh, newer, more story-focused games would sort of, sort of point in the direction of where the story is going and then leave that uh, for the players in GM to fill in so that it does a lot of that work for you. And uh, different games think in different ways, and people who think uh, in RuneQuest terms uh, want that, and they get it. So, I mean, the virtues of RuneQuest sound, uh, in this telling at least, primarily like they're the same virtues as other generally sort of simulation of systems like GURPS. You've played GURPS, I assume, because you wrote for GURPS. Do you see that there is a, a difference in handling RuneQuest versus GURPS that is not driven by Glorantha versus the Madlands or some other place? The take on it is very different. That uh, uh, Steve Jackson's notion of how how a physics engine works on uh, is different than Steve Perrin's. Uh, so the focus in GURPS is not quite so detailed leveled, uh, be in part because it is trying to be universal. So mm -hmm. although I'm sure there are rules somewhere in GURPS for leg greaves, uh, leg greaves do not uh, are not as a core part of the uh, GURPS experience as they are going to be in RuneQuest, that it is very specifically aimed at uh, Bronze Age uh, combat and weaponry, uh, and even more so, there are different things that you know are going to happen to you in a RuneQuest fight or a series of RuneQuest fights than in, in a series of GURPS fights. And so, a lot of that does come down to the fact of hit location. Right. Because in GURPS, I think, you know... There are, I'm sure that there must be hit locations somewhere, but even if you have GURPS low tech and GURPS, uh, grease, you're probably only going to be attacking someone's leg. If you say as the player, I'm going to whack at his leg, there's not a random quality to where do you hit the guy? I mean, maybe there is, but by and large, Rune, uh, GURPS lets you aim your, your, your blows more, more thoroughly than, than, uh, RuneQuest does. And just that single difference creates this, 
a huge felt difference in combat and in play. And that's, and that, and that's really it is just the sort of, uh, dirty medieval randomness of combat in RuneQuest is different, uh, even from the sort of, uh, clinical level of combat in GURPS, right? Yeah, exactly. So that it is, uh, in settings without healing magic, you are more fragile than you are in F20, but you are uh, much more robust than you are in RuneQuest where, uh, a lot of you are sort of, uh, glass cannons, right? There, right. There are a lot of, uh, characters who because people are glass cannons. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and there's, uh, uh, fumbles and criticals and they can do radically more damage and some weapons have very high. So, uh, basically, uh, even more so than in, uh, GURPS, one shot can take any character out at any time. Right. Um, and so, uh, the system is definitely, uh, skewed towards high damage and you've got all sorts of, you know, kinds of weapon uh, damage absorption, whether you're using a shield or you're pairing with a weapon. So a lot of attention is paid to that. But, uh, you know, at the end of the process, you can still, uh, in a single blow, go down and lose your character forever. Yeah, someone just hucks a dart at you and goes through your helmet and you're dead. Yeah. So, and and I think that in a sort of a uh, a gotcho, a, a gamer macho approach <laughs> is something that people relish about. Uh, well, it's got, it's got some of that sort of Glenn Cook, George R.R. R. Martin, grimy fan, uh, what's his name? Abercrombie, uh, grimy fantasy stuff, right? That, you know, you're, you're, you got magic and you got swords, but with, you are not up above the, the mud of the battlefield, you're down in it. Now, given that the other half of RuneQuest is very much up above the mud of the battlefield, the spirits and the shamanry and the rest of that, and that you have not I mean, maybe that you consider that more the fun of Glorantha than the fun of RuneQuest, but that I would assume is really the other big fun component of RuneQuest, uh, over and above the, the random mud fights is also the fact that your characters are constantly in touch with this spiritual realm and have to sort of keep tabs on it and treat it as important as opposed to just sort of, oh, I'm a cleric. That's right. Um, I pray for healing, right? Right. Uh, so, so far I've been talking about this stuff that is specifically, uh, the RuneQuest part of it that is not also exported to HeroQuest and to 13th Age and Glorantha. Um, and now we're talking about this stuff that is fun about Glorantha, and that is uh, the number one thing that people talk about is uh, that it is uh, mythic, that the uh, magic all comes from uh, gods or other mythical beings. You mentioned the spirits. You can also uh, be a sorcerer, but if you go off and drill down into that, they're, they're sort of it's the rationalism of monotheists. So even then, there's a uh, a, a, a mythic or a religio-magic uh, component to that. And so that you are, uh, in order to perform uh, works of magic, whether it's uh, putting an arm back on or awakening the uh, uh, spirit inside your falcon or uh, seeing what's on the other side of the ridge, you are, in a, uh, to some extent, recapitulating the uh primal mythology of the gods before uh, time began and the gods had to retreat from the mortal realm and, and uh, go uh, to a, a hero plane on above it. There's a God plane where you can, uh, you know, go into this other realm and, and recapitulate the myths directly and gain powers and stuff from it. So uh, I think what people liked about uh, the world of Glorantha is uh, that element. The fact that the, uh, tropes are, uh, mostly very unique to it, uh, that the, uh, versions of all of the sort of, uh, 
uh, Tolkien-esque uh, creatures are are quite different. So you know, elves are plant people. Uh, the dwarves are uh, are biological, but they are made to uh, uh, replicate. Uh, beings of pure metal who have mostly been destroyed uh, in the past. And so uh, they're, uh, you know, the dwarves are almost sort of robotic and they're very different than the standard uh, envisioning of it. So it's it's the, uh, everything is kind of turned on its head, especially in the core areas of the world where people are, are used to dealing with. And that's, uh, again, something that is fun to interact with, but that you can choose to interact with uh, through all sorts of different means, including the Six Age uh, mobile game, and uh, they've announced a, uh, a video game now. So uh, there's all sorts of ways to enjoy that part of RuneQuest. And the question of how tight a seal there is between uh, the RuneQuest rules objectives and playing in Glorantha is one that is you know, very much a matter of taste. It would be you know, interesting to find an alternate universe where people were used to another rule set first, whether it was, uh, you know, HeroQuest or something that historically might have existed at that time, mm-hmm. unlike HeroQuest, and see if people were saw the the rulesy part of it as being inextricably li- linked to the flavor of it the way that they do now. I think that the mm-hmm. reason RuneQuest is doing so well is, uh, one, uh, you know, the people who have uh, love Glorantha, learn to love it through RuneQuest, and so they're uh, coming back, uh, and uh, a lot of those people are in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also new people coming in who are, I think, very much attracted not only to the uh, mythic resonance of the setting, but as Steve Perrin did originally, you know, played they played D&D and went, well, the problem with this is it's too simple. <laughs> yeah. And it's not enough like real fighting. It's not bloody enough. Yes. We've had uh, six fights tonight, and everybody's limbs are still on. What's yes. what's up with that? That's not it's, realistic. It's, the, the system is falling down on yeah. us. Yeah. So, so the, you're 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 saying that there is there is um, it's almost sort of a, a, a I don't say schizophrenia, but it's very much two different urges combining in RuneQuest. There's the urge for that spiritual connection of the world, and there's the urge for the grimy uh, uh, leg breaking fights, and those do not inherently seem to go together uh, like um, uh, chocolate and peanut butter, but maybe just like chocolate and peanut butter, when you do blend them, they create something bigger than itself. Is there a, because the rules for dickering with spirits, same percentile thing, there's still, th- those can be uh, somewhat down in the weeds as well. Uh, do you think that there's a, a, a question of feel that unites them? Or do you really think that it's, Two um, uh, siblings that uh, just happened to share the same crib. Uh, well, that, that was my thesis in designing HeroQuest. So right, uh, right. Hyperlexic is asking a biased observer right. uh, because I designed a rule set that thinks like I do to run Glorantha in. Uh, right. So naturally, I would be more comfortable in it. But my pitch on there was, here's a game that will allow you to uh, run things that feel like Greg's stories and like Greg's myths, mm-hmm. which uh, are not full of uh, delimmings or about uh, wandering around in the ruins and talking to a baboon and deciding whether you want to fight it. And then you decide not to, uh, that right. they're uh, sort of epic histories. There's certainly, there's some uh, stories like, you know, the tellings of certain battles in which uh, there's uh, epic violence, but it's the sort of epic violence that you would get with a much looser rule system where just, uh, you know, other crazy things can happen. So, but there's definitely a, a worldview of people who, were drawn to the crunchiness of RuneQuest and learned to love Glorantha through that. 
uh, as well as people who learned to love Glorantha and then maybe found a different uh, rule system that they uh, found, uh, you know, thought more likely to. And I mean, you know, historically that's what the middle ages were was, you know, total spirituality and total grimy leg breaking. So to an extent that's, that's what's in the DNA of the whole fantasy genre. Right. And, and you, uh, encounter the mythology mostly through meeting people, mm-hmm. you know, here's this guy over the coming over the ridge. He looks grim. He's got two swords. Oh, he's a Humakti death dealer. Well, you know, the myth of Humakti who, uh, was the brother to Oralanth, but then severed his ties and came back as the wielder of death. And so uh, you get all that mythic stuff, and then uh, you go, oh, well, he's a death dealer of Humact. I think I will back slowly away, or I think I will challenge him, or... Or, more, or I will uh, team up with this baboon to ambush him. Yeah, I'm going to find a whole bunch of people to go and, you know, dry gulch him later yeah. when he's not paying attention. All right, well, on that uh, handy note of practical advice for when you meet a Humacti death dealer in the road... I think that we must back slowly away as someone who confronts a Humakti death dealer and perhaps go find a baboon in the next segment via this ad. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The gathering storm, the pounding ward rums, tell us that we are once more in the history hut. And this time we're in a wartime history hut because uh, Ante Aloma, Patreon backer, uh, asks, What was the real reason behind the British Pet Massacre of 1939? The official worry over food shortage seems like a poor cover for something more sinister. So, uh, uh, Ken, what was the British Pet Massacre as a real history knows it before we start uh, adding some make-em-ups to it? Right. Uh, as a real history knows it, what happened in 1939 as Britain began to move into war with uh, Germany, the government began to think, oh, my God, uh, what are we going to do about all these animals? Because the prevailing belief at the time that turned out to be about half correct is that war would immediately unleash terror bombing on all cities of Britain. 
And they said, we're going to have a bunch of animals, even in World War One, the Zeppelin raids, which were relative pinpricks comparatively, left a great deal of chaos and, and death and wandering animals in their wake. There was a big problem. We need to deal, get a, get a jump on it. And so all of the animal uh, groups got together as the National Air Raid Precautions Animals Committee to come up with a little pamphlet. And the pamphlet eventually said, if you cannot place your animals in the care of neighbors, it is kindest. It really is kindest. To have them destroyed. And by neighbors, presumably this means like rural neighbors. Rural neighbors, yes. Yeah. Uh, people who are going to be out of the, the the range of the bombing. And then this got on the BBC and was repeated apparently uh, fairly often, or at least people remember it being repeated fairly often. And it triggered a wave within the first week or so of war being declared of pet euthanization and, and killing. And there was lines around the block at uh, crematoria. Uh, there was um, uh, uh, places, you know, veterinary clinics would try and talk people out of it, but the people would come in and they would just insist that they need to have their animal put down for the war. And within the first week of the war, the only scholar to study the British pet massacre, a woman named Hilda Keane, has determined that about 25% of all the pets in London, about 400,000 pets, uh, and, and those these would be primarily dogs and cats and birds, uh, budgies, uh, which were a big pet in the 20s and 30s, uh, were, were, were killed. And I don't know if the budgies were killed in proportion to their ownership or if it was 111. I don't know that Hilda Keen knows that. I don't know that anyone right. knows that. But it seems particularly odd to think that budgies are going to be wreaking havoc. Yes. Um, I, I, I think it was probably the larger animals that you would literally be worried about feeding, right. but I'm sure that some people had their budgies put down. And this happened. Again, within the first week of the war before Bomber One ever crossed the channel. And then there was sort of a second wave of it, apparently, during the actual Blitz in, uh, 1940. And so the assumption is the, 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 you know, number that is brooded about is about 750,000 pets killed across the UK in the first, say, call it year of the war. And that's a lot of animals. It, it's not by that time a quarter of all pets, but it was a quarter of all pets in London, according to Hilda Keen. Um, and the speculation is that because the British population was so despondent about war coming and there, and you would see this in, in people's, you know, sort of, uh, oral histories and they would, and they would talk about it and they would write letters to the editor and they would say, I, I can't handle another war. This war is going to be too much. The first war was terrible enough. I'm just going to, we're just all, I'm going to poison my kids. If the, if the war happens, we're, we're going to check out. We can't be part of this war. And so the assumption by people who have studied, and again, not many people have studied the British Pet Massacre, is that euthanizing all these pets, murdering all these pets, was the act of sort of sublimation of the great panic and despair that was felt at the onset of another world war that everyone watching knew would basically mean the end of Britain, the end of the empire. You'd kill another zillion young men. You'd, you'd uh, bankrupt the country, bomb everything flat. Everything good would be destroyed. Even assuming you won, uh, they, they came out of world war one and they looked around and said, well, this was a, you know, a garbage pile. Why did that happen? This It's going to be even worse in this new war because all these new terrible weapons are more powerful. The bomber is more powerful. And the bomber, as they knew, would always get through. So there was a, a great deal of of pessimistic despair that got sublimated, thank God, uh, into murdering your animals instead of your children. But still, it was a very real social uh, need to express that in some way. And that is just how it happened, that it got played on by that um, perhaps – 
impolitic, but so very English phrase, it really is kindest to have them destroyed. And then that sort of acted as the trigger on this sort of basically episode of mass hysteria. Um, that is the sort of orthodox historical version of the British Pet Massacre. And again, this stays out of the orthodox histories mostly because it doesn't fit the chin up during the Blitz mythology that the British have uh, fed themselves both during and even more insistently after the event that we all pulled together and stopped Jerry and good for us and stood alone against the Axis when, of course, they were all in a, a pissing panic for, you know, years and years and years. Right. So one thing that you can do with this in, in gaming or, or uh, genre fiction is if you are creating a sort of cognate event in your world where there's a, uh, a war on the horizon, you could have a similar act of uh, sort of spontaneous hysteria where a, a bit of official advice uh, is uh, taken as a commandment and this horrible thing happens. And so you can have this as a, a expression of, of despair in your world. But I think our, our task here is to uh, look at what really happened for the benefit of our podcast listeners. And of course, uh, people uh, know uh, that Winston Churchill uh, was himself uh, a dog lover. You uh, might assume that he had a bulldog because uh, he himself had a somewhat jowly uh, physiognomy. But no, he was a, uh, a, a miniature poodle fancier. And he had several uh, brown poodles uh, named Rufus. And officially, his first Rufus uh, dies in 1947. But of course, that's all part of the veil-out because, uh, and there's even, uh, as another part of the veil-out, there is a, a hilarious story um, that uh, Rufus had the the run of number 10 Downing Street. And at one point, uh, he uh, wandered into a cabinet meeting and uh, Churchill, with his usual sparkling wit, said, no, Rufus, I haven't found it necessary to ask you to join the wartime cabinet. And then of course, everyone else in the room laughed because you have to laugh when Churchill makes hilarious jokes like that. But, of course, that's the cover story. Uh, somehow, obviously, a little bit of this got out and he had to, you know, fashion this into an anecdote in order to, uh, you know, uh, damp down the story. But in, in the, the real events, uh, which, uh, and I, I think that the joke story sort of displaced later in the war, but obviously this was very early in the war before the pep massacre when, it, you know, things were just started. And uh, Rufus came into the wartime cabinet meeting, and there was a strange blinking light uh, behind his head. And they uh, managed to capture Rufus, uh, and they saw that he had uh, this weird uh, circuitry affixed to his skull. And uh, there was weird science stuck to Rufus the dog. And so this created the possibility then that um, it, if they could get to Rufus, they could get to any English pet. And uh, this is why... Uh, the uh, home office had to get to work encouraging people to uh, thin the herd of pets, as it were, in order to give the Nazis uh, less opportunity to use their weird science to turn uh, pets into uh, uh, roving uh, spies. Yes. Um, uh, there is another anecdote that perhaps goes to this. Churchill also was a cat lover. Uh, he had a cat named Tango that would eat at table with him when he dined alone so he wouldn't feel lonely. Uh, and there was another cat... Uh, a gray cat named Nelson, and uh, Churchill later said, Nelson is the bravest cat I ever knew. I once saw him chase a huge dog out of the Admiralty, and I adopted him and named him after our great admiral. And if you are thinking 
oh, if we've got a Nazi dog in the war cabinet, maybe there was a Nazi dog in the Admiralty and heroic Nelson the cat chased him out. There's a lot of cats around uh, Churchill during the war. And so you hesitate to say that the cats said, kill all the dogs and it got out of hand because <laughs> well, it, it, it there was a backfire effect if they if they I said cannot that. rule it out yeah um <laughs> and so the and so obviously uh the the nazis mesmeric uh, soul projection spy science whatever it happens to be uh brain uh radiation like i think if even the english would have noticed if all of their dogs had had a mechanical brain attached to the back of their heads so i assume some dogs were like transmitter dogs that would gather up the telepathic reception of all the dogs and then burst transmit it back to the, to the Nazis. I, I can't imagine that, uh, although, you know, the Nazis, this is, well, we've only got so much radio equipment, better put it on dog heads. Yeah, that would explain a lot. Yes. That would explain a lot. Because, you know, as, as previously established here on the show, they were on a lot of methamphetamines. So they were on a lot of what, meth. What, once they, once they went down the putting uh, robot brains in dogs uh, rabbit hole, they, they could have uh, put a lot of time and effort into that, especially early in the war. So much, so much work. <laughs> there was, uh, there was also, um, a, a different question about, uh, Nelson the cat. Uh, and the, one of the big questions was, how was Nelson going to, uh, behave, uh, next to Munich, which was the press name? One assumes Chamberlain was smart enough not to name his cat Munich, but Chamberlain <laughs> did have a cat that lived at 10 Downing. And uh, Montgomery had a dog named Rommel, so. So there you th- go. That maybe. might have been an act of unwise, sympathetic something or other. <laughs> yes. Or, or just part of Montgomery's genius for almost winning a war. Um, <laughs> The, uh, and, and Nelson again is re- reputed to have chased Munich out of 10 Downing. So perhaps Munich is an example of a, of a Nazi cat infiltrator as well that they do. They have, they, they're using the dogs as telepathic, um, collectors and maybe the cats are, are the actual infiltrators that the Nazis have made a pact with the Saturn cats, um, and they're infiltrating under the guise of earth cats. Uh, yes. And, and famously, even just different earth cats aren't necessarily fond of one another. So. Oh, no, they are not. <laughs> <laughs> says a man with count them two cats and at least three ongoing cat wars. Yes. So it could easily be that the, uh, that one group of cats decided to, uh, cozy up to the, uh, uh, British government in order to, uh, prosecute a wider vendetta against other mm-hmm. cats. And, uh, there could have been a, you know, a lot of collateral damage. Now, of course, uh, this gets us back to the budgie question because as we said earlier, it does seem absurd that people would worry about roving flocks of budgies creating chaos uh, after a, a, a bombing raid. But, of course, again, if they're being uh, used as, uh, you know, a few of them being used for actual uh, radio surveillance and then uh, the others are just all part of the psychic uh, neural network that then sends, uh, is used to broadcast and jump the sim- signal back to uh, to Berlin... Uh, then you've got to get rid of your budgies too, because they're a big threat and, and they can carry messages. Right. Uh, and in fact, maybe their cages are part of the transmission uh, system, which is why, you know, you got to get rid of them and move the cages out of your room, uh, so that they can't, you know, listen in on you as you discuss, uh, troop movements or, uh, supply routes or all the sorts of things that one is otherwise tempted to say in front of a budgie. Right. You, you, I mean, you know, the famous poster, someone squawked. Yes. <laughs> someone cheaped would have been someone too on cheaped. the nose. Yes. Right. Yes. So now that we've torn the lid off this, uh, I think, uh, I think we can safely, uh, making sure that we're not being given a stink eye by any residual budgies, 
uh, head to the next commercial and see what lurks on the other side. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Asphageln on drive through. Prevent this podcast from going to Live on a Farm Up North by joining such Patreon backers as... Jesse Lowe. Dreaming Johnny. Diane Donaldson. Ernest Muller. And Garrett Fitzgerald. Okay, so it's time once again uh, for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. And uh, if you've been uh, listening in sequence, you know that we've been uh, replaying audio from our uh, CarcosaCon panel about Robert W. Chambers. And uh, this little bit will transition from the uh, Chambers panel and then start and uh, pick up uh, with the Yellow King Mythos panel. So in the Chambers panel, you'll hear uh, Ken go through the rest of the stories of the corpus other than Repair of Reputations. And then we're going to start talking about not so much Chambers himself, but how his works have been uh, refashioned and, and uh, built upon, including uh, with the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, since then. So uh, when we switch from the one panel to the other, uh, we're going to leave out all this sort of introductory stuff and just uh, make a transition. But uh, when that happens, you will hear Ken once again briefly recapitulate the stories by Chambers, uh, but it is very brief and goes in a different direction. So uh, don't panic, don't drive off the road, and uh, please rock it back in audio time to CarcosaCon in Poland. The mask. Uh, the mask is uh, basically it's it's a it's very much a Twilight Zone story. It's about a, a sculptor named Boris Vein who has invented, developed a basically an alchemical process by which he can petrify living flesh. And he it opens with him sinking a, a flower into the stuff and reaching it and pulling it out at a moment of golden light, and it's a stone flower. And he does the same thing with a fish and with a rabbit, and eventually. Guess what? Uh, his girlfriend. Um, uh, because she is, uh, in love with and has, is loved by our, the narrator of this story, who is, um, uh, identified as Alec. Um, and Alec, uh, also has suffered a debilitating fever, and it brought on, we are to assume, by his repressed love for Boris Yvain's girlfriend. And in this fever, he recalls the King in Yellow, and that is where the King in Yellow slips in. To this story, and it's the story where the King in Yellow mythos is the most tendential of all. Of right, it, it is introduced as an example of corrupt art, 
uh, in the same way that Boris's alchemy is also corrupt art. It's a it's a thematic element. It's not really a story element. Right, and because of that, that creates the implication then that the book is actually changing reality and making weird things like have a petrifying juice possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end, um, happy ending, spoiler, uh, cover your ears, it, it turns out it only petrifies you for two years. So good, good, good news for everyone. Everyone gets unpetrified. I think so too. And so did Brian Stableford, more to the point, who says, oh, now we're believing what a Chambers narrator says? <laughs> How about he goes to the house and has a psychotic break and believes that the statue has come to life? Does that sound more like every other Chambers story in this cycle? I think so. So, um, you know, take your money, pay your money and, and take your choice. I think Chambers intends the happy ending because certainly that's what his later professional career is based on. But Stableford is right that it makes a better story uh, to, to have Alec be an unreliable, feverish, yellow king in uh, poisoned narrator. And as well, it, it's uh, got uh, Chambers is looking at uh, at, a, at a romance uh, situation again as the uh, driver of the story, which is not something you see in a lot of horror uh, either before or since, and certainly not in Lovecraft. Uh, so, uh, in the Court of the Dragon is, uh, I think, the, the most elusive and hallucinatory of the stories. To ask you to describe the plot implies that there is a plot, uh, but it's more of a weird vignette uh, mm-hmm. and that sort of short, punchy uh, format. It's the one that's structurally, if not thematically, the most like Maupassant and Beers. Right. The uh, notion uh, being that a man is going to an organ uh, uh, to, to, to mass at a church in in uh, Paris, uh, and the organist uh, is not the regular organist, and is in fact a pallid stranger who he remembers that he has wronged, but he remembers it well after he is wondering why he is hallucinating and unable to derive succor from the mass, and instead is thinking about um, uh, parodic poetry and the king in yellow, and etc. And then he flees the church, uh, is pursued by the organist, and then wakes up. Back in the church, the organist apparently having constructed this entire fugue state, literally because he's playing an organ uh, voluntary. There's a, a nice little bit where the structure of the story matches that of an organ voluntary. Um, and is consumed, one assumes, by the king in yellow because he says uh, that he sees the king in yellow and hears the words, um, uh, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which is from uh, the book of Hebrews, but is also in this context the thing the king in yellow says to him. And so, uh, again, we've got a guy with an unknown relationship to the play who has got the king in yellow as a presence in his life that is apparently destroying him. We don't know what's real. We don't know what's not real. And uh, rather than uh, the, the visual arts, which is the theme of uh, the mask, and architecture, which is one of the sub-themes of repair, this is about music. So we're sort of going through all of the, all of the true arts and seeing the king mess with all of them. Uh, and then we come to the one that I guess is probably if there isn't an archetypal uh, story in the cycle because there's only four of them, mm-hmm. but this is the one that is sort of closest to the stories that uh, have then been built on it, and that's the yellow sign. Right. And in the yellow sign, the presence of a of a artist named Mister Scott, um, who we are perhaps meant to assume is the same as the character Jack Scott, who is the child, uh, the friend of Alec from the Mask. 
And if one assumes that, then all of the stories slot into a sequence, and you can date them even. Yes, uh, and, and that also, there's a quick reference to Hildred Castain's uh, right, madness, head, yeah. madness and head injury in yes. 1895. The, the tragedy of young Castain. Yeah. And so the, uh, uh, the story of the yellow sign is about a, a Jack Scott, or Mr. Scott, this artist in New York, and his model, Tessie Reardon. And uh, they're having a blameless artist-model friendship until uh, they kiss. And it is their forbidden kiss, their forbidden love, that suddenly poisons their relationship. And uh, Tessie then discovers a copy of The King in Yellow in Mr. Scott's library, which he does not recall having bought. Um, and uh, she reads it and is poisoned by it. And the creepy cemetery watchman, who has been gazing at them and causing nightmares, or in appearing in their nightmares, uh, then... Uh, arrives to collect them both for the king in yellow. And uh, it ends in, uh, again, uh, spiritual and existential despair as Mr. Scott is saying, I wish the priest would hurry up. And the implication is he dies without ever having been shriven and will be damned forever because of his uh, adulterous love and his association with the king in yellow. And that is really just a New York story of, you know, the, the the death and the maiden is is basically exactly what it is. It's very archetypal, and it is. Oh, she read the king in yellow. That's a bad thing. But also, he caused her fall by kissing her back, and uh, and, and there's a lot of references to very up to the minute New York uh, entertainment in it. Um, you know, uh, because Tessie is sort of an artist model and a party girl. She goes out, and we have a a few uh, descriptions of places that you might go in New York City in 1895 or 1894 that were uh, fun and exciting. And so that lets us date that story very, very precisely because it can't take place except in that 1894, 1895 window when all of those uh, establishments existed. Uh, and that is, uh, as Robin says, is sort of the, the closest to a straightforward plot. There is very little in the way of an unreliable narrator. Either, I mean, they're, they, they died. We have a objective witness in the medical examiner saying, oh my God, what is this corpse doing in the room? Uh, implying that the night watchman had been an animated uh, ghoul uh, sent by the king in yellow or, or some other vile force. Uh, so there is a straightforward supernatural occurrence. There is the king in yellow. There is uh, love and artist models. It's sort of the archetypal, it would be the archetypal chamber story, except that he wrote nothing else like it and stopped. Right. <laughs> it's become archetypal in retrospect because that's the one that uh, has the tropes in it uh, that are most often replicated by... Uh, people, including myself, mm -hmm. who then later explored uh, the mythos in, in fiction. Um, so we have a few minutes left uh, to the extent that anyone is going to come and kick us out, which they're not, because this is the last event of the, <laughs> of the show. Uh, of the, of the show. Um, so I guess it's time to uh, move it over to questions. Before we do, though, I'll just note that we did do an earlier panel uh, that ends with, we did in kind of in reverse order, of the influence of chambers and what it means to have a, a mythos of stories based around chambers and other people who followed in the footsteps. And uh, we'll be, uh, we recorded that as well, and we'll be releasing that in uh, little uh, segment form, bite-sized chunks in our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, uh, which you can find uh, in, in, in your podcast uh, collector of choice. Just type in Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff and it'll come up. Or Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Uh, so, are there any uh, questions? Yeah, 
because you annotated uh, chambers. Uh, I believe I remember there was a Kickstarter for that. Yeah, is it already in print or? It's not in print yet. The PDF is available to the backers, mm -hmm. and it's also available to be bought by anyone. And I don't know whether or not there are any copies of the of the hardback left in pre-order. It's a deluxe edition. It's bound in either leather or, or, or really great uh, faux leather. Uh, Samaraya's beautiful art is in it, full color, just a gorgeous piece of work. But that means it was on a very limited press run, so I don't know if there's any hardcover copies left. And I don't know if Shane intends to release a paperback edition, but the PDF you can buy anytime you want. Um, and Arc Dream Publishing is who publishes that. But this is always the question that baffles authors, which is, when is this thing that you've written come out and all of those details? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that... I did that last year. The details, yeah. details. Yeah, go to a publisher panel, like anyone would ask a publisher to talk. Uh, how did it happen that the King, King and Miel was incorporated into the Cthulhu Mythos? Uh, long answer, or, or short answer, uh, we did that panel already. Uh, short answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, long short answer. It was incorporated into the Cthulhu Mythos because H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, read Chambers in 1927 and said, oh my god, this is great. Uh, unreliable narrators, long lists of crazy illusions, a weird book. Where, uh, where have you been all my life? And why are you writing romance novels now? What is yeah. wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> e uh, e evil gods. Evil course. gods, yes. And so uh, in uh, the story Whisper in Darkness, he makes reference to uh, Carcosa and the Yellow Sign and another Chambers location, Jan uh, Ho from uh, Maker of Moons and uh, Hastur, and Holly, and the Lake of Holly, and so he's giving shout-outs to Chambers and Bierce in the sort of litany of uh, mystic information that the Migo are providing uh, to Akeley in that story, and so uh, as uh, the jackdaw-like mind of Lynn Carter and August Derleth seized on every little scrap, every proper name in Lovecraft, and whipped up an entire mythology around them, Durleth and Carter and uh, others took those squibs from Whisper in Darkness, went back to Chambers, and then tried to uh, retroactively retcon Chambers into having been a Cthulhu Mythos author, rather than taking Chambers' vision and expanding on it, if you follow me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what we're going to uh, talk about and, and thrash around uh, is here the idea of taking what uh, Robert W. Chambers started with and expanding it into a wider mythos and looking at uh, people who have uh, done that before, examining my own process of, of doing that, and uh, finding other ways to extrapolate it. And also I think it's interesting to contrast the basis of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos into which uh, Chambers was later retroactively subsumed uh, versus what you get if you build out a world strictly based on just what Chambers gives us and right. Chambers themes and, and motifs. Uh, so the interesting thing I think about this process is that there's relatively slim amount of material to derive inspiration from compared to uh, the uh, essentially the totality of Lovecraft's output. Uh, Robert Chambers wrote 
uh, a lot of material. Yes, he a, did. An awful lot of material and an awful lot of awful material. Um, and Also uh, true. Also very true. Uh, and uh, uh, Ken Cleverly, as part of the Kickstarter process, came up with a way for me to have to read more of that hideous drack. But the uh, basis of the Yellow King um, mythos, if we were to create a mythos, and I would argue that it, it at least has a continuity, mm-hmm. if not a mythos, um, is uh, a set of four uh, short stories. Uh, so, Ken, do you want to run through... Uh, and none of the short stories are super directly about uh, the mythos elements of uh, Chambers, but rather, uh, like a lot of Lovecraft, there are stories that have their own beginning and middle and end and themes, but they are part of the broader universe. So, Ken, right. what, are the, what are the elements, what are the building blocks uh, that we are dealing yeah, the, with? The four stories in one poem... Uh, that Chambers uh, vouchsafes unto us are uh, the repair of reputations, um, the yellow sign, uh, in the court of the dragon, and the mask, which are the four stories that are part of a connected cycle. You can adduce, if you wish, half of the Demacel Dis, because there is a, ter- not even a secondary char- character, a tertiary character in it named Astor, and uh, you can also, if you really feel like stretching a point, you can involve some of Chambers' other fiction that is thematically or very loosely connected to some of the elements that are in the King in Yellow short stories. And so, uh, for example, uh, because some of the other characters in other stories in the same collection cross over to his novel In the Quarter... You could, in theory, say that in the quarter is, if Lovecraft had also written a straight-up novel about Providence life, we would still be pretending it was Cthulhu Mythos. Right, and there's there's somebody in it named Charles Dexter Ward. Right, but he just goes to the store and has a feud with his mother. Right, yeah, and uh, but it still takes place in the Lovecraftian universe. Just mm-hmm. nobody ever mentions it. Right, uh, just the way that all of Bones, uh, the show Bones, occurs in the supernatural universe of Sleepy Hollow. But they only notice that once, and then agree to forget about it forever. Yes. Um, the and so you there are individual bits. Uh, there's a, a story called the Silent Land in which he mentions Carcosa again. But again, it is a anecdote retailed briefly and incompletely by. Uh, it's the same anecdote. It's retailed by two different characters, and that's it. That's that's the sum total. The rest of of Chambers is zooming off. Uh, examining the loves and losses of America's shop girls, and uh, every now and again, a incompetent uh, cryptozoologist <laughs> um, who also suffers loves and losses, often at the same time that he's loving and losing a cryptid. Yes, uh, there's a, 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 a couple of books of alleged comedy cryptozoological adventure, um, and uh, so from these few stories we oh, have, and the poem is Casilda's song, of course, which yeah. I should have mentioned in yeah. the rundown. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what we learn from these stories uh, is that there is a, a play uh, that has been published and banned. The play is called The King in Yellow, and it refers, uh, uh, it is a, a decadent play, pretty clearly modeled on uh, Oscar Wilde on his Salome. And uh, Chambers is uh, clearly setting himself up as uh, more of an artistic conservative, and therefore the work of the decadence is uh, uh, anathema. Anathema. Not only terrible, but in this case, 
uh, drives people insane, or especially after they've had a head injury, uh, renders them susceptible or to a long fever, or long fever, uh, to a mad a dream of the future that is now our past in an alternate dimension. Uh, and uh, and the idea is is that this. Uh, book is essentially a meme. It is a, uh, a, a malignant thought form that uh, runs through the culture and uh, can cause a uh, subterfuge-oriented uh, conspiracy to sort of pop up and uh, a, a service to an authoritarian regime. A, a bunch of cons- blackmailed conspirators can be sort of hypnotized by the sign. So the idea is that the yellow sign, of course, is core to the idea of a mythos. It's a, not just a symbol of membership in an organization, but something that has its own unearthly power and that exposure to it uh, functions uh, like a drug or a mind-altering device or uh, like Pepe the Frog. Uh, and it's something that can go through society and cause uh, harm. So there's a one level that, that the play is an aesthetic crime, that it is uh, a bad idea that has been sufficiently convincingly rendered uh, that it can uh, warp and harm uh, societies. But there's another level that it actually has supernatural power that actually refers to a real alien world called Carcosa, where the sky is white and the uh, stars ahead are malignant, pulsing black pustules, and there's an alien uh, fortress in the distance. And this is the scene of the play that is dramatized where... Uh, as far as we can sort of piece together from the little bits of the play, uh, a figure returns to the court of, uh, and he's uh, wearing a pallid mask and he's dressed in tattered scalloped yellow robes. Uh, he confronts the two princesses of the kingdom, uh, Casilda and Camilla, and uh, this weird masked figure uh, is doubly revealed to first of all be their father, the king, and second of all that the horrible uh, white a uh, bone-like mask is in fact not a mask at all. No masks, no mask. And when they tear it off, there's nothing to tear off. There's been a strange alien uh, infiltration. And the King in Yellow himself appears uh, as an antagonist in one of the stories. Uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the Court of the Dragon, he is the figure that has been toying with or punishing, depending on how you read it, uh, the uh, viewpoint character who unusually for Chambers is not named in that story. Uh, and one of the things that Chambers does, and Robin has, uh, in his game designery way, pieced together a logical narrative, uh, which is only very partially supported in the yeah. text. There is no indication that Kinsella and Camilla are sisters. There is no indication that the king in yellow is the same as the wearer of the pallid mask. Uh, there is no indication that the king that is spoken of in the play is the father of, uh, the, of Kinsella and Camilla. Uh, there's a lot of things that later readers have sort of assumed are true, but you can get a completely textual reading of The King in Yellow to mean lots of different things. And one of the great things that Chambers does, as Robin alluded to, is this, the yellow sign, for example. In one uh, story, in Repairer, it acts as a the sign of, a, of an underground army and a activating symbol that you see the sign and you have to do things like a sleeper signal in uh, an espionage novel. Uh, but it also acts as a, uh, a sort of a mark of Cain or a brand, an indication that you belong to the king in yellow and he has claimed you as his own. And Chambers never defines it. There's no point at which any character explains anything, really, uh, except the, the notion of the play as a poisonous 
thing of beauty. Uh, the uh, presence of the king, in one case, he seems to be sort of a a vengeful figure. The the story ends with um, uh, how terrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God, uh, implying that the king has a divine uh, uh, vengeance uh, quality to him. But in other stories, the king is uh, just this sort of uh, thought form. The word tulpa didn't exist yet uh, in the West when Chambers was writing, but it's basically a tulpa. It's a created figure that people imagine into existence. And so the, the the king means a lot of different things. The yellow sign means a lot of different things. And of course, we can interpret the play in all manner of different structures. There's very, very little that Chambers ever reveals about what the play actually says or where it's or what's actually happening in it. And that's one of the great things about it is because it's in those blank or half-hidden spaces that Chambers is allowing our imagination to run riot and knowing that the conspiracy theory we are thinking up is better than anything that he could have thought up. And it turns out much better than anything he could have thought up because when he tried to think up a conspiracy theory, <laughs> it involved an invisible planet a hundred miles from Earth that uh, sent perfectly blameless Syrian... Um, uh, of um, uh, sectarians out to cause international communism. So yes, good 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 thinking chambers. Don't explain the plot uh, at, at the beginning. Uh, that's uh, the the later story, the Dark Star, which again, of course, you can imagine as Chambers having uh, looked at his own black stars and said, "Well, that's a cool image. How can I ruin it?" <laughs> Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once again to enter that most enigmatic of huts, the hut where the ill-defined bumps up against the curious. Uh, and we're not really, you know, it's, it's, what category? Oh, wait, wait. They're in the corner. There they are. There's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking kombucha. Okay, this is a hut with aliens in it. We look at the window. Oh, yeah, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor. And this time around, uh, we've got, uh, uh, some, some maps of uh, Central Asia up on the wall, and uh, I think some Cyrillic. So perhaps we're in for some uh, uh, Russian crankery, because we're going to uh, talk about Lev Gumilyov, or as it is sometimes spelled uh, in uh, English, Le Lev Gumilev. Uh, and if you go to his Wikipedia page, you might just discover that he's a weird crank racist historian, because the eleptonic elements of his crankitude 
uh, have been, uh, shall we say, downplayed. Because uh, there's people who really love Lev Gumilev today. They even put him on a stamp in Kazakhstan. Uh, so, Ken, this is someone who, who led a difficult life yeah. uh, before he started coming up with crazy stuff. Uh, do you want to uh, encapsulate that first? Okay. Uh, to begin with, uh, Lev Gumilev began uh, his – he was the son of two poets, uh, Nikolai Gumilev and Anna Akhmatova. His father was executed by the Cheka and – he was arrested by the NKVD, mostly for being the son of one and a half poets now, and then tossed into the gulag in 1938. And he served time in the gulag and got out because they needed everybody, even poets, served in the Red Army. Once the war is over, they're like, back into the gulag with you, Lev Gumilyov. You have not learned your lesson to not be the son of a radical poet. And he gets tossed into uh, one of the worst, the White Sea Canal gulags, where they are digging the White Sea Canal through the permafrost up in uh, the Arctic Circle. And his uh, mother, um, Akhmatova, published lots of poetry about how great Stalin was, which kept her out of the gulag, but did not do a lot for Lev. She then wrote a poem about how sad she was that her son was in a prison camp, uh, which kind of, I think, probably messed him up a little bit. But he gets out in 53 when Stalin dies and he uh, gets put into the cultural sphere because his mom's a poet, even though he doesn't have a university background. He's put into the Hermitage Museum in uh, Leningrad uh, just as a as a sort of a clerk's researcher and begins and discovers at this point the broad spectrum of Central Asian art and uh, history that he'd been sort of exposed to as a kid when he read books about, you know, Cossacks and whatnot. And he began to do archaeology in uh, cooperation with the Hermitage and study the Khazars, uh, a nomadic people of the Volga uh, River Basin. And upon this broad but undirected research, erected his theory. Uh, his theory is that Russia is a Asiatic civilization, that these Central Asian peoples contributed a ton to Russia, and that Russia is not a European country that is invaded by Asians all the time. It is an Asian country that is a blending of uh, Slav and uh, steppe peoples into a new ethnos. And this became sort of the germ of his broader theory that World history is composed of ethnoi, of groups that cling together for no reason other than they cling together. Uh, that the ethnic energy, the ethnoic energy, is uh, somehow connected to solar radiation, that the more solar radiation uh, or the less solar radiation will generally inhibit or in encourage the creation of ethnogenesis. And he based this on the fact that when he was in the prison camp in the Gulag, people would cooperate in tiny bands, even though they were in the most Hobbesian, miserable circumstance you could be in. And you literally, if someone, if the guy next to you died, you could eat his food and not die. And it was just that dog eat dog. But he said it was not dog eat dog. Hobbes is wrong. People actually collaborate into little groups. And on the global historical scale, those little groups, because you're not living in a gulag, you're living in uh, somewhere nicer than a gulag, grow until they become ethnoid that are united by this sort of common energy. And the common energy sometimes was biological. You eat what you eat because that's what's there. Sometimes it's supernatural. You all worship the same gods. Sometimes it's just mystical. We don't know what makes it. We just know that it's a thing. Right. And that became his big theory is that 
ethnogenesis is the driver of history. And it, it became very similar to other cyclical theories of history like Toynbee or Spengler, where there's a biological component to civilizations and to histories so that a group uh, is young and strong like a young plant and then grows up and becomes powerful like a, a medium plant and then uh, rots and falls over like a dead plant. And that that's how uh, everything in biology works. So that must be how human cultures work because human cultures are biological. Right. And, and you might be thinking that, oh, by energy, uh, he means mostly sort of metaphorical human energy, people working together. Or by solar radiation, he means, oh, well, naturally groups prosper and cohere when there's more sunlight and the crops grow. But in fact, it was it's more than that. Uh, he uh, uh, posits the existence of an energy called peak, P-I-K, uh, and this is a an actual physical force in the uni- uh, in the universe. So it's in a class with Wilhelm Reich's orgon, for example. Um, and so uh, peak is he- actually the the mathematical constant that he introduces to measure it. I think the energy is passionarity. Right. So passionarity is the energy that is measured in peaks. Is that, uh, yeah, is that right? Yeah, right. The, the okay. peak is the, is the mathematical uh, okay. out. Yeah. So, but passionarity also comes from outer space. Yeah. It, it comes from, uh, it, it comes depending on what, because he had a long career and believed a lot of stuff over the course of his long career. Generally, the, the big books that he made his reputation on, passionarity is driven by solar radiation. But I think that, you know, the farther back you kick that can, he doesn't have an explanation necessarily for why, given roughly equal levels of insulation around the globe, there were only five ethnoi at the beginning of history as opposed to 200 or whatever. And that I think he has to provide some sort of, of extra special, something more than just solar energy driving your passionarity. And I don't think that he says that it's just luck of the dice, random chance. And that there is a destined ver- uh, quality to passionarity that these, um, uh, the, these groups grow because they're going to grow the, that the Russia becomes a super ethnos because it is Russia and it is better than other ethnoi. And that's why it becomes a super ethnos. Right now you, you might think that the Soviets would uh, look at a, a doctrine that said, uh, Russians are the best and embrace it, uh, but they did not. His uh, monographs were suppressed because, of course, he was emphasizing the wrong part of the Russian identity. He was yes, saying he was emphasizing all the guys that the Russians were exploiting and murdering. <laughs> yes, uh, it was not about Slavic superiority, but it's like, oh, these Slavs are lucky to uh, be under the uh, influence of the Kazakhs and the Tatars and uh, and so forth. Now, the his uh, anti-Semitism, of course. Unsurprisingly, is a big part of the mix, and I'm sure the uh, Soviets were perfectly happy with that part. But the part that uh, made the Slavs the junior cousins in ethnic superiority were, uh, I, I imagine, uh, beyond the pale. So his yeah. uh, he was influenced by a czarist crank scientist named Vladimir Vernadsky uh, with the whole idea of uh, there being sort of a an ecosphere or, or bioenergy and uh, he, uh, Vernadsky has also gone on to influence other people. So Biodome 2, uh, which, uh, those of us of a certain vintage may remember, um, it, it is another outgrowth of, uh, that whole idea of sort of a, uh, a pseudo mystical scientific energy that, uh, that unites everything. And, uh, at one point, I think it's, uh, Gumilyev who's saying that, uh, you know, the people on top of the earth are essentially part of its crust. And the, and the whole, you know, that you're all part of the ecosystem, but 
uh, certain eth- ethnoi are, are more crusty than others, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, better. And so uh, he's super. gone on to influence uh, Alexander Dugan, who we talked about in episode uh, 304, uh, because, uh, again, you've got this uh, uh, popularity of a, here's a pseudo-mystical explanation for uh, why we're better than everybody else. That's that's always a marketable thing. Yeah. I did read a little something. Uh, I read a doctoral dissertation on Gumilyov, uh, not all of, but the fun part, because I'd run across something that said he uh, was a Mongol conquest denier, and I was fascinated to hear how you write that out of history. And it turns out um, he sees the conquest actually as uh, you have to differentiate the Mongols conquered the southern part of Russia. Sure. But that was all busted up by the Khazars, who, of course, had been vampirized basically by the Jews and ruined everything. And so they conquered the Khazars, who were awful, and they conquered the Kiev Rus which he did not identify as part of proper Russia. Again, one of the things that got him in trouble with Russian historiography, because he said Kievan Rus uh, was part of the dead civilization of uh, the dead ethnos of Byzantium and was a Western import and did not uh, account for true uh, ethnic uh, growth because it squabbled amongst itself and squandered its heritage. And so, those guys were swept away by the Mongols, but that was just the Mongols. They, if it hadn't been the Mongols, it would have been the next guys. They were they were doomed. But that the actual amalgamation of the rest of Russia into the Mongol Empire came by agreement that the Russian states all said, yes, we want to be part of the Mongol Empire to defend us against the hated Lithuanians. And uh, if if you your eyes got big just now, so did mine when I read that. But there was a period where the Lithuanians first as pagans and then as a right arm of the Polish Catholics were punching into Russia. And uh, they uh, they needed he needed the Russians needed to fight the crusading West. They needed to fight the pagan Lithuanians. And who would help them but their good buddies, the Mongols? And is that act of amalgamation and alliance that caused proper Russia to grow up in the team up between the 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 Mongols and uh, the North Slavs in Muscovy and Tver, not the stupid Kievans who deserved everything that happened to them, and certainly not Novgorod, which was, again, a Western plant uh, too influenced by Scandinavia. And so when Novgorod falls uh, to Moscow, he sees that as the super ethnos amalgamating a thing that it should have already had rather than a moment of, of uh, Mongol influence in destroying uh, Novgorod. So he has a, a heterodox, certainly approach to Mongol history, which I suspect if you, you know, stripped out the anti-Semitism and ran it by a modern medieval scholar uh, in the West, they would say, well, that, that, that's, that's a very nuanced approach to the Mongol conquest. Good for you. We do love a good nuance. But it comes from this sort of weird, and I think a priori belief system on his part that the Ukrainian uh, Slavs don't count, and that certainly no one who was ever letting Jews into their cities counted, and that you had to uh, look to the purer, better uh, uh, Muscovites and uh, and and people in that neck of the woods rather than the corrupted uh, river Slavs uh, down in the south. Another thing that makes him inconvenient for current propaganda purposes without some retooling is that he thought that the uh, Muslim world was full of passionarity. Yeah, that they were on a, they were on a passionarity high right now. Uh, and of course that's uh, not what the uh, current uh, forces of, uh, of uh, international racism are going to want to promote. It's certainly not what Putin wants to promote either. No. So 
how do we make uh, use of this knowledge? Well, first of all, uh, if in real life you find yourself uh, in, in discussion with someone who is admiringly quoting uh, the works of an obscure uh, scientist named Lev Gumilov, now you <laughs> now you can back away. <laughs> now, now you have the context to uh, to know that a giant uh, red klaxon is going off. Is there a way to uh, use this stuff in gaming that is not inherently distasteful? You could certainly have, you know, here's your motorcycle gang, and they're all uh, uh, Gumilovians uh, in their spare time. Uh, do we? Uh, want to give any credence to uh, not obviously the, the racist overtone, but is there, uh, do we want to say there's biosphere magic at all or are they, uh, tapping into nonsense? I mean, biosphere magic, you know, it, it sticks its big gooey arms around everybody. I mean, Taylor de Chardin invented it and he was, uh, a sappy, as, as sappy a guy as anyone has ever liked. I mean, it's basically the Gaia thesis, you know, James Lovelock, uh, is basically the same thing. So. If you believe in biosphere energy at all, you can certainly say that there is a, you know, Soviet attempt to weaponize it using Gumilyov's research and that those are the bad guys because they're, you know, doing it wrong, <laughs> as you can example by the entire history of the Soviet environment. Um, but uh, you can have uh, a, a post Soviet million, uh, uh, zillionaire who is attempting to recreate passionarity, um, uh, with, with a pit, with a, a pick cannon or, or some sort of, uh, additive that he's putting in the food in some Russian city to, uh, breed supermen so that they will be able to, um, uh, restart their passionarity and, and build a new super ethnos. Um, you could have, uh, any number of, um, uh, uh, for example, in a, in a time game, uh, one of the, rather than fighting a rival future where, uh, the Soviets won the Cold War. You're fighting a rival future where Gumilyov's history is understood. And when they come back to meet you in Mongol times, they're doing something that you don't expect because they're not trying to stop the Mongols from invading Russia. No, the opposite. They're opening the gates. Um, and you have to figure out why they're doing that. And that becomes their, their intellectual motive or, and their, and their method as well. Uh, well, on that note, I think, uh, it's time for us to gallop across the steps to uh, prepare for uh, next week's podcast. Uh, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll meet you then, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep newtlings from stealing our leg greaves by joining such Patreon backers as... Hyperlexic. Jason Denon, Jeff Dean, John Buckley, and Lee Carnell. Bedeck yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered 12 of our latest design, Valkyrie Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>